as we now find ourselves in the Thanksgiving and the beginning of the Christmas season, I decided to step away from our study in 1 Corinthians for a Sunday and speak to you about thanksgiving, about praise, about truly expressing a heart of gratitude as believers during this time of the year. So I would like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 103. As I mentioned in our scripture reading, I'd like us to look at the first five five verses of this great psalm of praise. And I've entitled my discourse to you, Calling Our Soul to Praise, because that's exactly what David does in this psalm. Now, before we examine this marvelous passage of scripture, I would like to give you a brief history lesson about our country. Our American heritage, as most of you know, is undeniably rooted in the biblical Christian faith of the early pilgrims. Folks like us, who were children of the Reformation of the 1500s, And because of their commitment to the five solas that you see around this auditorium, and because of their purity and and devotion to the Lord and to his word and purity of doctrine and so forth, unbelievers hated them. And they had to look for a place to go to worship in freedom. In fact, In England, in particular, they were labeled with a very derisive term called Puritans. These Puritans believed that the Church of England was very, very similar to the Roman Catholic Church, the Church in Rome, and they resented that, they rebelled against that, as we all would as Christians, and so persecution began to mount. And the apostate church in England uh, caused these people to have to flee, especially to Holland and and other places around uh, Europe in that day. But they really couldn't find refuge, and so several of them decided to make their way to America. And having gained some financial backing and joined by other colonists, they boarded the Mayflower and made their long journey to America and eventually made camp at Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620. Now, historical revisionists will labor to somehow convince us, especially our children, that these early founders of our nation were not really Bible-believing Christians, a claim that is easily refuted by the facts of history on many levels. For example, in the Pilgrim Hall Museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts, there are four Bibles on display, each brought over on the Mayflower, one belonging to the first governor of that group, a man by the name of William Bradford. And in that museum's display, where you see his Bible, you will read this, quote, this 1592 Geneva Bible belonged to Pilgrim William Bradford. It journeyed with him from England to Holland and eventually to Plymouth. The pilgrim separatists used the Geneva Bible. 
This was a translation with commentary notes in the margin made by English Calvinist refugees living in Switzerland. The official English church strongly disagreed with the Geneva Bible's commentary, end quote. And concerning the faith of those that he governed, Bradford wrote this, quote, They, as the Lord's free people, joined themselves in the fellowship of the gospel to walk in all ways made known or to be made known unto them. And history records reveal that on several occasions, the, the pilgrims had opportunities to give thanks to God, and they even had some of the uh, American Indians join in with them, and you wonder to whatever degree they knew the God they were, they were giving thanks to, the, at least the Indians, but they did this. And we know that a generation after the first Thanksgiving, on June of 1676, another day of Thanksgiving was commissioned by the governing council of Charleston, Massachusetts. By unanimous vote, they instructed Edward Rawson, the clerk, to proclaim June 29 as a day of thanksgiving. And I'm about to read to you part of the proclamation that they made during that time. Quote, the council has thought meet to appoint and set apart the 29th day of this instant June as a day of solemn thanksgiving and praise to God for such his goodness and favor, many particulars of which mercy might be instanced. But we doubt not those who are sensible of God's afflictions have been as diligent to espy him returning to us and that the Lord may behold us as a people offering praise and thereby glorifying him. Bear with me with the old English, okay? He went on to say, or the, the proclamation went on to say, The council doth commend it to the respective ministers, elders, and people of this jurisdiction, solemnly and seriously to keep the same, beseeching that being persuaded by the mercies of God, we may all, even this whole people, offer up our bodies and souls as a living and acceptable service unto God by Jesus Christ, end quote. And then in December 1777, on December 18th, there was the first Thanksgiving of all the 13 colonies, a celebration, and it commemorated the, the patriotic uh, victory of, over the British at Saratoga. And they said this, quote, it is therefore recommended by Congress that Thursday, the 18th of December, next be set apart for solemn thanksgiving and praise. That at one time and with one voice, the good people may express the grateful feelings of their hearts and consecrate themselves to the service of their divine benefactor. And that together with their sincere acknowledgments and offerings, they may join the penitent confession of their sins and supplications for such further blessings as they stand in need of, end quote. My, how things have changed. It's amazing to think how these godly saints that forged what was once a great nation the United States of America depended upon the values of biblical Christianity 
And all of that is woven even through the tapestry of our Constitution. And sadly, the corruption of sin and, and, and false doctrine and idolatry has now caused God to lift his restraining grace upon our country and abandon America to the consequences of her iniquities. Can you imagine how appalled those early pilgrims would be if they saw what was going on in these United States today? That we now have elected political leaders that champion, for example, the murder of unborn children, that champion homosexuality, same-sex marriage, that champion the theories of evolution that deny the glory of God, our Creator, that we now have a country with leaders that, that, that even are promoting an escalating intolerance for Bible-believing Christians seeking to marginalize us at all cost, that now we are moving towards the philosophies of Marxism and socialism and a one-world government that is so clearly denied in Scripture. Remember, and in, in God denied that in Genesis 11 when he confounded the tongues of the first globalists at the Tower of Babel. Well, none of these things should surprise any student of Scripture. We know that according to Daniel 2 and, and Revelation 13, God predicts a one-world government and a preoccupation with global unity uh, economically, governmentally, even a one-world religion that will one day be controlled under the diabolical rule of the Antichrist. And indeed, all of these things and many more are predicted to escalate as the world moves inexorably towards a day of divine reckoning. And yet, dear friends, despite the moral freefall that we see in the United States, we as believers can celebrate God's goodness to us. Like many of you, I've been all over the world, and there is no place like the United States. And we are thankful. We give thanks, even as the early pilgrims did. Because our sovereign God rules over the affairs of men and all of history, even Satan's temporary rule will give rise, we know, to unprecedented events of, of, of mercy and even judgment that will give God glory. And so today we want to focus on this idea of of giving thanks to God for all that he has done. But we want to do it from a very biblical, precise, theological perspective. In 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so we want to do that this morning by looking at the first five verses of Psalm 103. Now, a little background here. This is a great hymn of praise that David wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in this psalm, he's literally engaging in a conversation with himself. He is calling himself to praise. He's literally preaching the gospel to himself, preaching to his, to his soul. And so this is a call to personal worship that we can all imitate. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Now, I might add that this psalm, when properly understood, will greatly increase 
your attitude of thanksgiving for all things. And it will fan the smoldering embers of of half-hearted gratitude into just an, an inferno of heartfelt praise. In fact, this psalm is a cure for a thankless heart. It will also help you in private worship. I'll give you that from the outset. Many believers struggle with private worship. There are some that even kind of mock it as if it's, it somehow conflicts with God's grace. But very few have commitment to this most important discipline. Many people that I've talked to will say, you know, I, when I try to worship privately and kind of have my own devotions, I, I tend to lose focus. I, I don't really know what to do or what to say other than just read some random passage of Scripture. And for many people, dedicated times of private prayer are, are few and far between. And when it does occur, many will say, I, I just lack focus. My mind begins to wander and my prayers just begin to, to, to evaporate like fog in, in, a, in the sun in the morning. And after th- about three or four minutes, I don't know really what else to pray for. And so, if, folks, if that is you, David will give you some great lessons here on private worship. And I hope you will see this. Now, this is, this is a magnificent psalm. That seems to rise above all the other peaks of adoration um, in the Psalter's mountain range of, of praise. And it's attributed to the latter days of David's life when the odious nature of, of his sin, his personal sin, and the reality of pardon ha- had a greater effect upon him. And I think all of us will realize that the older we get, the more we see our sin And the more we're amazed at God's grace and the more we are prone to worship the Lord, even as he is doing here. And so here he lifts his voice in praise as he sings of God's undeserved mercy that's directed towards him personally. And here he he magnifies Jehovah God because of his steadfast love, because of his covenantal love towards towards his his own people. And and he's going to ultimately close by summoning all of creation, including the angels, to join him in praise. A number of songwriters have based popular hymns on Psalm 103. For example, example, Johann Grauman in 1525 wrote, My soul now praise thy maker. Um, uh, Joachim uh, Neander in 1680 wrote, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation, that we just sang. Uh, oh, bless the Lord, my soul, and bless, O oh, my soul, the living God. Isaac Watts in 1719. Uh, James Montgomery in 1819 wrote, Oh, bless the Lord, my soul. Um, and, and Henry, uh, uh, I think it's Light is the way it's pronounced, wrote, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. Remember, that's written to the tune of angels from the realm of glory. He says, uh, praise my soul, the king of heaven to his feet, thy tribute bring ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven evermore. His praises sing. Alleluia, alleluia. Praise the everlasting king. Great hymns have come from this psalm. Now, it's important for you to understand here that Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 are really paired together. 
both of them begin with and, and end with, bless the Lord, O my soul. But there's a difference. In Psalm 103, David addresses himself in a personal call to worship for all of the benefits that God has given him personally, for, for just the magnitude of God's mercies and faithfulness to him. Whereas in Psalm 104, David addresses God and praises him for his unimaginable power and his wisdom in creation. And in fact, in many ways, Psalm 104 uh, serves as a commentary on the creation account that we, we find in, in Genesis 1 and, and, um, and following. But here in Psalm 103, <coughs> excuse me, we can divide this into three categories, and we're just going to look at the first one today. But what you will see in the first five verses is a personal call to worship. And then, secondly, a national call to worship in verses 6 through 18. And then, finally, a universal call to worship in verses 19 through 22. But today, I want to focus on his personal call to worship because it's so fitting for us to understand and to imitate during this Thanksgiving season that is going to culminate in the Christian or the Christmas season where we celebrate the birth of our Savior, the incarnation of Christ, and so forth. So forth. So let me read just these first five verses again to you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Now, dear friends, please understand that these five verses are foundational for all true thanksgiving. And here's where he begins with this personal call to worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. And I would ask you, does this describe the passion of your heart? Or is this foreign to you? Bless the Lord is a phrase that occurs 23 times in the Old Testament. And seven of those times appear here. And it's always a call to formal worship where God's people are called to voice with their lips their most sincere adoration for, for the majesty and the holiness of God. And I fear this is largely missing in evangelicalism today. Maybe it's missing in your life. There seems to be an overall lack of reverence in both private as well as, as public worship these days, primarily because most evangelicals have a very shallow understanding of the perfections of God's character. Now, the word bless is the opposite of the word blaspheme. Bless means to acknowledge the Lord in his position of sovereign power and to give him all the honor that is due his name. And who is the Lord that he is describing here? Well, it is Yahweh. It is the Old Testament name for God, which appears more than 6,800 times just in the Old Testament. It is derived from what is called the Tetragrammaton. Tetra means four grammaton letters. 
the four Hebrew consonants that are transliterated in English as Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, and you will see it in your Bible as Lord, all in capital letters. That is Yahweh. In fact, the old theologians will often call it the ineffable tetragrammaton, the two wondrous to utter from the lips four letters, Yahweh, the name of God. And it comes from the Hebrew uh, verb for being, Kava. So the name of God means that God is and he wills to be. And it implies that, that he is the God that has no beginning, a God that has no end, that he is ever present, that his being is derived from his own self-determination, that he is self-existent. And that he is what he is and he will eternally be who he is and what he is. That's the essence of this name that we are to praise. And God revealed this name as, quote, his name and, quote, my name forever at the burning bush with Moses. Remember in Exodus 3. And there God responded to Moses' questions about, about his name. And God says, I am who I am. And later he said, I am, verse 14 of Exodus 3, which again speaks of his eternal and unchanging nature. Now, what's important for us to understand is that Jesus repeatedly claimed to be the son of God, and he repeatedly identified himself as the great I am of Exodus 3 and other passages. The Old Testament name for God, Yahweh. This was the title Jesus used to describe himself, you will recall, in John 8, verse 58, where he told the unbelieving Jews, quote, before Abraham was born, I am. He referred to himself in the present continuous tense because he has always and he will always exist. When Jesus' enemies came to arrest him in the garden, they were searching for him, for Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. In other words, I am he. And the text says that they drew back and fell to the ground. In John 12 and verse 41, John, John identified Jesus as the Lord. And there you have capital L and then small O-R-D. And that's a reference to the Hebrew Adonai of, for example, Isaiah 6.1. When Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne Adonai, by the way, indicates that that he possesses supreme sovereignty, that he has ultimate authority over all things external to himself. But John also described Jesus as Yahweh, as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord of hosts in Isaiah 6, 3, whose glory fills the whole earth. So, dear friends, Jesus is both Lord Adonai, as well as Lord Yahweh. He is the sovereign ruler over all things, and he is also God, very God. Jesus is the pre-existent, self-existent, uncreated creator, sustainer, redeemer, and consummator of all things. Now, you say, Pastor, why are you dwelling on this? I will tell you why. Do you realize that 71% of professing evangelicals do not believe this? According to a Ligonier ministry survey, 
Seven in ten evangelicals believe, quote, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Folks, that's mid-fourth century heresy called Arianism. I mean, this is the stuff cults believe. This is what Mormons believe. They deny the deity of Christ, that he is the second person of the triune Godhead. He is the one who is co-equal and consubstantial and co-eternal with the Father. Consubstantial means he is of the same essence or of the same nature. This means, dear friends, that seven out of ten professing evangelicals are not Christians. Because you cannot be a Christian and not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. This is consistent with what Jesus said in Matthew 7, that not all who call me Lord will enter the kingdom. There are the few and there are the many. And only the few who do the will of the Father, who are truly born again, will enter. By the way, folks, this is what happens when predators fill pulpits. This is what happens when Christ and him crucified is not preached. This is what happens when Bible doctrine is set aside and you just meet together as kind of a country club. This is what happens when Christian people will not, as Paul said, endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside unto myths. Dear Christian, please understand, if Jesus wasn't God, we are all fools, and we have no hope of eternal life. You see, God's law has been violated and his justice must be satisfied. And this requires an atonement. Atonement means to provide a moral or a legal repayment for, for a fault or for an injury. And sinful man could never atone for his own sin. You see, God's holy and infinite justice could not be satisfied apart from a holy and an infinite ransom, one that only God could provide. And we know that atonement requires two things. It requires satisfaction and substitution. It requires satisfaction of the offended holiness of God that could only be accomplished by an acceptable substitute for the guilty party. And what would appear to be an unresolved dilemma was perfectly resolved through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Jesus had to take upon himself the nature of a man in order to be punished in our place, in our stead. But he had to be God, very God, in order to endure the sufferings of all who would believe. He had to be a son of a virgin, according to the flesh, but God Emmanuel, God with us, according to the spirit. Jesus had to be conceived by God and born of a virgin in order for him to be both the son of man and the son of God. The atoning work, indeed, the, the, the work of redemption required a theanthropon, a God man. One who could supernaturally fuse together the human nature and the divine and form an indissoluble bond. 
A man had to bear the punishment that man deserved, but only God could endure it to the very end. Now, please understand, in Psalm 103, David didn't understand all of this. He did not have complete revelation concerning how God could remain just and justify the ungodly. But with the illumination and the inspiration of the Spirit, he knew that God would do this somehow. And he's calling himself to praise because God is going to accomplish this. And he begins by calling all of his faculties together. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless or acknowledge Yahweh and his position of sovereignty and power. Everything that is within me, give him all the honor due, him, due to him. For he alone is the object of my praise. He alone is God, very God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And soul in such a context refers to a man's total being, his mind, his heart, his will. And by the way, this demonstrates his commitment to be obedient to the supreme, the first and foremost commandment. Remember, Jesus described it in Matthew 22. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Oh, child of God, don't miss this. Let every sunrise be a call to worship where you call your soul to bless the Lord and all that is within you. Bless his holy name. Now, why? Why holy? Why wouldn't it be glorious or some other adjective? Well, because holiness is the all encompassing attribute of God. As we look at scripture, we see that holiness portrays his infinite otherness, his incomprehensible transcendence. Holiness portrays his consummate perfection, his moral purity, his eternal glory. It stands alone as the defining characteristic of his person. And throughout scripture, we read of the trihagion, the holy, holy, holy. It doesn't say love, 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 or gracious, 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 or faithful, 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 even though he is all of those things. But at the most fundamental level, he is holy. He is utterly pure, totally other, transcendent beyond anything we can imagine. And his holiness, therefore, is the summation of all his glorious perfections. And all of that is contained in his name. This is why we are to bless his holy name. Let me give you an example of this. You remember when Moses warned the Israelites in Deuteronomy 28, he warned them and said, I want you to do all or God wants you to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord or Yahweh, your God. And in the Psalter, he is referred to as the, quote, king of glory and the, quote, God of glory. And for this reason, the psalmist exclaims, for example, in Psalm 115, verse one, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Psalm 79, nine, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. 
And in Psalm 102, beginning in verse 15, he's praying now for the people. And he says, he he prays that the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. Child of God, don't miss this either. God is jealous for his name because he is jealous for his glory. This is why we are commanded in the third commandment. God says, you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Exodus 20 and verse 7. And you will recall in Jesus' model prayer that that he gives us in Matthew 6, we are to pray, our Father who is heaven, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. By the way, that is not a request. That is a petition for God to make his name hallowed, to make his name sanctified, set apart among the people. In other words, we are to pray that he will cause his name to be treated with utmost respect and holiness, that he might be feared, that he might be obeyed and worshipped and glorified. Isn't it wonderful to interact with some brother or sister in Christ who with full-throated praise can say with David in Psalm 34, 1 through verse 3, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Then he says this, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. It's a precious passage of scripture, especially for me, because in my Bible, 46 years ago, my dear wife wrote next to that passage of scripture, her initials, And then, quote, love you. That's kind of been our verse. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now back to Psalm 103. David continues his call to worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget none of his benefits. By the way, here we see because of the grammar, this should be a continual exhortation to never forget this. My whole being never stopped thinking about this. Never forget this because we are prone to do so. His benefits can become so familiar that we begin to take them, take them for granted. And what are his benefits? There are really three, the way he puts it here. He has, first of all, in verse 3, pardoned and healed. Secondly, he is redeemed and crowned in verse 4. And finally, in verse 5, he is satisfied and renewed. Let's talk about this for a moment. Forget none of his benefits. The first one, he's pardoned and healed. Notice verse 3. Who pardons all your iniquities. Pardon here is the present tense, active voice. In other words, our forgiveness of sin is perpetual. It is a benefit that we currently enjoy and will continue to enjoy. Let me make this real practical. We do not need a priest so that we can go to that priest and him somehow mediate our forgiveness. There is no need for the Roman Catholic absolution whereby some priest gives the sacrament of penance and frees us from our sin. There is no need for purgatory. 
some imaginary place where we must suffer and be cleansed more from our sin before we can enter into heaven. No, we read here that God pardons all our iniquities. Beloved, this is the fountainhead of all praise. Without this, there would be no cause for any kind of thanksgiving because we would all be damned. The damning lies of Roman Catholic theology were the furthest thing from David's mind. And once again, that's why I say that saving grace, an understanding and, 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 and absolutely the, the, the essence of saving grace within our soul is fundamental and foundational to every expression of thanksgiving. I mean, so many people today are thankful for our great country. They're thankful for their family. They're thankful for the blessings of America, you know, or freedoms and all of those things. And that's all great. But folks, without a con consuming sense of gratitude for saving grace, what's the point? Why voice your praise for a beautiful orchestra that's playing on the Titanic while it is sinking and you are about to drown in a frigid ocean. It makes no sense. Why be thankful for living in America if one day you're going to be cast into an eternal hell? So it has to begin with saving grace. And for so many unbelievers, they just do not see their sin, therefore they do not see the Savior, they do not see judgment that's coming. And as a result, so many people limit their praise to things that are nice, they're good, but they're eternally insignificant. How sad. Instead, we bless the Lord, oh, my soul, forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities. John 3 and verse 18, Jesus said, he who believes in him is not judged. Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. First John 2, 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we could go on and on for hundreds of passages. Beloved, the theme of forgiveness is uppermost in David's mind. It's the dominant theme of the psalm. It is foundational to all thanksgiving. He speaks of it in verse 8, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, and verse 17. And he describes God's forgiveness of our iniquities as that which has been taken care of in, 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 in the past, the present, and the future. And he says that God forgives us so thoroughly that we should therefore be fools to in any way allow our conscience to accuse us for those sins that God has forgiven us of. By the way, look over at verse 12 for a moment. Fascinating text. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. Well, why is that? Well, if you go north far enough, what's going to happen? You're going to start going south. So you can't have that. But when you go east... You never come to an equator. You just keep going east. You never start going west. You just keep going east. And the point with all of this is the limitless nature 
of God's mercy towards us. David also goes on to say that he heals all our diseases. Certainly we know he heals diseases, but the context here is God's pardon from sin, not healing of physical diseases. We know that there is no automatic physical healing in the atonement. The, the forgiveness of our sins does not guarantee the healing of our body. All believers get sick. Uh, we, we eventually die. And many passages teach us that God has his saving purposes uh, in our sicknesses. So this is a, a, a spiritual reference to the healing of spiritual diseases. By the way, it's also important to realize that, that in, in this type of Hebrew literature, um, the, the, the ancient people would use Hebrew parallelism, things that would rhyme in thought, not in sound like we would do. And so that's what you have here. This rhymes in meaning, the, this idea of, of healing your, your iniquities or, or the forgiveness of our iniquities and the healing of our diseases. And so this phrase is another way of expressing the the pardoning of our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. The same type of concept. Jeremiah 17, verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. I was reading John Gill, who was an 18th century uh, Baptist preacher, theologian, a uh, man that held to a very firm Calvinistic soteriology. And he says that th- this phrase, he heals all your diseases. He, he, he says, quote, not bodily ones, though the Lord is the physician of the bodies as well as of the souls of men. And sometimes heals the diseases of soul and body at once, as in the case of the paralytic man in the gospel. But spiritual diseases or soul maladies are here meant. The same with, quote, iniquities in the preceding clause. Sin, and I like the way he puts this, sin is a natural, hereditary, epidemical, nauseous, and mortal disease. (laughs) And there are many of them, a complication of them in men, which God only can cure. And he heals them by his word, by means of, the, of his gospel, preaching peace, pardon and righteousness by Christ, by the blood, wounds and stripes of his son, by the application of pardoning grace and mercy for healing diseases and forgiving iniquities are one and the same thing. Then he adds this, and this the Lord does freely, fully and infallibly and for which thanks are due unto him. And it would be very ungrateful and justly resented should they not be returned to him. That's the point. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Why? First of all, he is pardoned and healed, verse 3. But secondly, he has redeemed and crowned. Notice verse 4. Who redeems your life from the pit. A reference to the pit of corruption. A reference here to resurrection to eternal life. In other words, he he has reversed the sentence of eternal death. The psalmist uses this in Psalm 16, beginning in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, 
nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. If I can digress for a moment, in Psalm 100, David has a great psalm of thanksgiving. There, David expresses the primary motive for his praise in verse three. He says, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. And what he's referring to there is praising God for the fact that that he has made us, not so much that he has created us physically out of nothing, but rather recreated us. The Hebrew term indicates that to us, making us new creatures in Christ, if you will. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Absolutely, a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, the new things come. And once again, apart from an accurate understanding of, of God's saving and regenerating grace within us, we would have no basis Friends, we would have no reason for any kind of thanksgiving because apart from grace, apart from the transforming power of the spirit, we would have no hope and we would all be lost. So, again, all thanksgiving is anchored in the bedrock of the gospel. In the immovable Gibraltar of what God has done on our behalf. Verse three is not only redeems our life from the pit, but he says he he crowns you with loving kindness. Again, speaking to himself, who crowns you, my soul, He, he crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Loving kindness is a term in the Hebrew chesed, and it refers to his covenantal love, his steadfast, faithful loyal love for his own. It's used like 250 times in the Old Testament. And it stresses the idea of belonging together, a belonging together of those who are, who are involved in this love relationship. And David fully understands that, that it's all because of this love relationship, all because of God's loving kindness and his compassion that he can enjoy the benefits That God has given him. God is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. We see this again in David's great psalm of repentance in Psalm 51. Remember there he cries out to God for for forgiveness. Based solely upon God's steadfast love and grace. He says in verse 1. Be gracious to me O God according to thy loving kindness. There it is again. According to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgressions. What a marvelous benefit this is, worthy of our praise. He crowns us with loving kindness and compassion. I mean, folks, think about it. This is so amazing. Though our sin made us undeserving of any honor whatsoever. Nonetheless, he not only removes our sentence of death. But he clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. He makes us joint heirs with Jesus. And how much more would David's heart have been animated to praise if he had known all that we now know about his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. My, what a blessing it is to be able to be here today and have the full revelation of Scripture and all of history. And we can look back and see what they could only see in symbols. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget none of his benefits. Why? 
He's pardoned and healed, verse 3, redeemed and crowned, verse 4, and finally, he has satisfied and renewed, verse 5. He says, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Isn't it great as we walk with Christ how he gives us so many good things? And, you know, we need to, as he says here, forget none of his benefits, O my soul. Hey, soul, all that's within me, you have a tendency to forget. Don't forget any of his benefits. It reminds me of the little song we used to sing when I was in Sunday school as a little boy. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Remember that? How many of you used to sing that song? Oh, Dave, we're going to have to sing that sometime, you know what? But, but that's the point here. Nancy and I were doing this the other day. We, we got started and we just got lost. I mean, after a while, you just you, you just can't even. It's like one thing that you remember leads to another and you just you're just overwhelmed with it. He satisfies your years with good things. Then he says, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. It's interesting, your years in the Hebrew uh, text says your ornament. And some modern Bible versions tend to translate it as you because they understood ornament as another way of speaking about a person's soul or self. Other translations use your desires, like the NIV, or your mouth, like the New King, King James. Thinking of the body as, as an individual's ornamentation. Uh, some Jewish commentators translated it as your body. But, but folks, the point is simply this. The life that is ours in Christ is one that is supplied with great strength by Christ himself. Our life as we walk with Christ is filled with the energy of the Holy Spirit. So much so that, that we can be likened to the strong and the, the, the fearless, majestic eagle that soars high in the heavens. And there seems to be an implied promise here that, that those who live lives with this kind of worship, this kind of, of understanding translated into internal praise, will be people that find additional comfort and help as they go through the aging process. They will continue to experience new life and new joy, regardless of what's happening in their bodies. In many ways, they will be able to return to the days of their youth. Isaiah 40, verse 31 speaks of this. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Oh, what a joy it is to be around godly old people. And I love, I love our church because we've got a lot of young and we've got a lot of old. And we're all getting older, right? Every day. But to be around godly old people, their hair may be white and their skin may be wrinkled. Their backs may be bent, but oh, their eyes sparkle with the joy of the Lord. And there is a supernatural strength about them, a spiritual resolve that is, that is just palpable. You can just, you can just sense it when you're around them. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. I love this passage. He says, do not lose heart. 
All right. Now, right there, I know he's got my attention because we're prone to do this. I don't think I have this for your overhead. He says, do not lose heart. Though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. Isn't that wonderful? You know, there's no stopping the godly man or woman, regardless of their age, when that person is constantly calling themselves to worship by saying with the psalmist, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Oh, dear friends, may this be the preoccupying theme of your heart. The first thought that enters your mind in the morning. As your feet come off the bed and as they touch the ground. May your soul be filled with heartfelt praise wholehearted devotion to live for his glory. Call yourself to worship. If I can close with a practical note here, I would encourage you all to commit yourself to a private time of worship every day. I like to do it in the morning. That was the Lord's model. Many others have done that. It doesn't have to be then, but we tend to be our best at daytime. You do it at nighttime, you know what happens. All of a sudden, your eyes get heavy, and in the middle of a sentence, you're asleep. All right. Call yourself to worship every morning and rehearse God's blessings every night. I would encourage you to schedule your time. Make it a priority. Not something that you do if you have time. Make it a priority. And have a plan. Use a devotional book and use your Bible. But use your Bible systematically. Don't, none of this open and, you know, put your finger on something. You, you never know what the passage might read. You know, it might be slay them with the sword and, you, you know, whatever. You've you got to be careful with that. But be systematic. And I would encourage you that whenever you, you do this, that you keep a list of things that you're praying for. Make a list. That will keep you on track. And it will also help you. Later on, when you look back on that list and you see what God has done and answered prayer. So whenever you come before the Lord in private worship, you have your Bible. Maybe you have another book. You have your list. You have a pencil and paper. And you make this an event. And you pray, dear friends, with your Bible open. In fact, pray Scripture. These first five, five verses, you could pray for hours just expanding on those first five verses. If you wonder why you have a hard time praying, it's because you're not doing these things. But if you will open your Bible and pray Scripture, you will see that the Spirit of God will inform your mind and your heart. And all of a sudden, it's like, clicking on the menu on your computers and you click on a certain thing and there's all these things that come up. It's the same type of thing with respect to petitions and praise. So may I encourage you to do that. Call yourself to worship every day. And let these types of things really animate your heart during this Thanksgiving and Christmas season. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths and all that they mean to us as believers. 
May we truly be a people that are just consumed with gratitude for all of your amazing benefits that are all rooted in your saving grace. And Father, if there be one here today that knows nothing of what it means to truly be in relationship with you, they do not understand or experience the joy of sins forgiven. I pray that you will bring conviction to their heart, open their eyes that they might see the light of your truth, the light of the gospel, that they might be saved. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.